Hey, Dame. What's good? You know, I was curious. We've been home for a minute now recording remotely. And, you know, I just feel like I've had so much more time on my hands. I've been listening to more music, watching more shows, engaging with more podcasts. And I was curious, have you listened to any podcasts recently? Nope. Still no. I, I make this and I watch things and I love all you podcast listeners because you make this work possible. <laughs> but all you other podcasters, don't ask me. I have not heard your podcast. I'm really sorry. It is no hard feelings. I don't listen to my own. <laughs> if you were... If I were though, to a podcast. I know where I would go. Where would you go? I'm going to check out Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. Yeah, I love independence. I love free things. This sounds like where I'm going to have to go uh, step into this game of podcast listening podcast for the people get it for free on the app store education hello hey this is ergo it is indeed i'm kiss i am damon and what we do here is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for more equitable and creative how you doing dame i'm doing pretty good just you know had a birthday pass uh came up to a cabin and, and celebrated with my family i'm still here now recording remotely uh so I, i'm in a i'm in a state of gratitude how are you pal i'm good for once you're the person in the cabin yeah i feel like i'm always you always, always cabin it up on you. for uh for your birthday we did i don't know if you saw but we did a caption contest i did see the beginning a, of a that. photo of i you. saw adrian marie brown i think adrian there. gets the 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 win which was, uh, if you want to see the photo, go to at Ergo Radio on Instagram. And the winning caption is, how could you fart in the studio? <laughs> Which is a question you've asked me before. And the face <laughs> was not that different from that. So everything checks out. Um, birthday aside, and a very happy birthday to you. Uh, we are so excited to bring you this episode as part of our education suite with the brilliant and wonderful LaRue Dumi Lewis McCoy. Shout out to... One, Eve Ewan, for helping curate this suite and getting us in contact with LaRue. Um, and just an amazing educator who's talking about the spatial landscape of schooling and education and how things are obviously place and race-based um, and how school and education maintain systems of power. So it was really interesting uh, because so often when we're talking about public education and when we're talking about you know, black, indigenous, marginalized people of color. Uh, we are so often talking about the urban space, particularly like the big city space. Um, and so breaking down some of those mythologies and some of those divides and binaries uh, really brought some more nuance and complexity to the study of education that we're doing. And I got to geek out about Yonkers, which is always a happy moment for me. Um, and only you. <laughs> <laughs> LaRue Dewey Lewis McCoy is an associate professor in the Sociology of Education program in the Department of Applied Sciences, Social Science, and Humanities at NYU. His first book, Inequality in the Promised Land, Race, Resources, and Suburban Schooling, examines the experience of low-income and racial minority families' attempts at accessing school-related resources in an affluent suburb. He's doing a multi-site ethnographic study in Westchester right now, which we talk about. We talk about the history of suburbanization in relation to education, and we do some dreaming about what kind of fugitive space and, and liberatory education uh, could be built in this time and moving into this future we're, we're trying to create. So thank you so much to him. Uh, we're really excited to bring you this episode. Let's go into the classroom with LaRue Dumi Lewis McCoy. Let's get it. 
This is another episode in our education suite, uh, and we are so excited to be getting to know and talking with and learning from LaRue Dumi Lewis McCoy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's start where we start uh, on every episode, which is with a two part question. Um, in this time, this moment, this season, however you define time, uh, how's the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Some days I'm very elastic and some days it snaps a bit. But the truth of the matter is that patience is the only thing that keeps me going and often keeps my family with our head above water. Because whether I have uh, a schedule that I've marked down and I'm clear exactly on how everything's going to go, you know, uh, we plan and then life changes on us in a moment. So mm-hmm. patience grows and, 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 and we adapt. So I, th- I think I'm doing all right. The fact that I'm here talking to y'all means that I've done something right. Yeah, you so, were patient enough, at least for our scheduling. Yeah, that, that, that's that's <laughs> baseline. Yeah. So I, I hope that this uh, that gives enough room to like build off that answer. I want to add another part for the education suite, and I wish I thought of it when we talked to Stovall. Uh, but but getting how this this world is is treating you a hand that is pushing you towards patience. Uh, I want to go a little bit deeper and and understand like what is the world teaching you right now in this time. Well, the world is teaching me that um, the things that even if you don't believe in normal, right, even if you weren't (laughs) invested prior to the pandemic in what normal was, you still had some trappings of normal in your life. You had a baseline. I've been teaching for for exactly you got a baseline. I've been teaching for more than 20 years and I'm used to doing it face to face. I'm used to a certain kind of interaction. I'm used to creating those aha moments in the classroom with like kind of rigorous back and forth. And then have everything shuffled, it's meant that I've had to shuffle how I think about education, shuffle how I think about research, shuffle how I think about parenting and being a member in the community. So now that I'm all online, you know, my initial thought was like, oh, I'll just make it like Zoom University. And I quickly realized, like, that's not what I want to do unless I want to recreate a system that disconnects more people and creates more opportunity for folks to be left behind. So even the way that I'm living and thinking about my teaching, I do a lot of teaching out of sync with the timing of the classes that I'm even assigned, right? So I had to adapt in my own thinking around education. I also had to put more trust in the folks that I work with. So those students who are co-creators of knowledge and be like, hey, look, I may not actually be the flint that sparks the fire. I may simply be kindling. But if I can be kindling in this process and you all can do something different and you all can reach that aha, you can own it in a different way. So in this moment, I've been uh, challenged in what I do in the classroom as an educator at NYU, what I do um, as, as an educator and an elder in a rites of passage that I co-lead. And also I've been challenged as a parent, right? Looking at the adaptation of schools or the non-adaptation. I live in New York City where every single day we get a new message about what schools are going to do and not do, <laughs> right? So we, we, it, is, it is phenomenal. And by phenomenal, I mean scary, right? And, and I'm a pretty tuned in person. You know, I research schools, I do all this kind of stuff, but like every day I'm following educational reporters and looking at the mayor, uh, set out a new set of initiatives that he's done without discussing it with any teachers, without any principals, or any parents, and all while assuring folks like, no, 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 things are going well. We got this under control. So this is, yeah, I'm, I'm learning a lot in this moment. Similarly here in Chicago, uh, you know, obviously we're fully remote here, but, uh, the like all the recommendations they like had this whole group and working group on it with no active teachers 
That's right. That's right. That's right. I wonder who might have some ideas about how a classroom could function in this time. Maybe people <laughs> right. who facilitate classrooms. Yeah, at uh, this point, it has to be open disdain. And, <laughs> and also, I, yeah, I'm learning. You know, I'm learning something right now is that we need to use phenomenal more more expansively because all phenomenons aren't great. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things that are, are phenomenal not. are really they are not. scary. So oh, that's, that's exactly. <laughs> that that's a good way to just really confuse people. Be like this shit is it's just bonkers. <laughs> no, um, I'm serious. Sometimes I'm like this is amazing. Like I'm amazed <laughs> that you thought this was a good plan or that you're sticking by it. Like oh. and I'll tell people I was like you've blown me away. I didn't even think, you know. <laughs> and I'm prepared to stay away. <laughs> that's I've right. Been blown exactly. and I'm we'll not be coming over here, back. you be over there. <laughs> <laughs> So we'll obviously talk about this moment, um, but in the shifts that have that have had to happen. Um, but I'm curious, before pandemic, going back in your own relationship to education, what were the other moments, uh, non-pandemic related, that were those big shifts or those adaptations or the things that changed the way you approached uh, this field as a parent, as a participant, as a scholar of it? Yeah, I mean, I think probably the first shift uh, happened long before I was an educator. It happened when I was a student, and um, it was kindergarten. And I can remember kindergarten pretty well. I can remember playing in the area where there was a cash register, where there was like the fake food. And as I came to the end of kindergarten, I remember on one summer afternoon, my teacher, Miss Morrison, came to the house, and I was like, I was shook because I was like, oh my gosh, my teacher who kind of only exists in a school mm-hmm. is at the house. So number one, there was something weird about it. And I remember being in the backyard in a little inflatable pool. And afterwards I asked my mother why Miss Morrison was there. And she's like, well, you know, she was telling me that they want you to do kindergarten again. What do you think about that? And at first I was like, huh, okay, well, I like kindergarten. So, you know, I'll do it again. Like, let's yeah. run it back. Um, but then she's like, well, no, it would mean like, you know how we talked about you go to first grade, you wouldn't go to first grade. And I was confused. And my confusion at the time was logical. But in fact, my parents kind of understood what was happening much better than I did. I was in a class uh, uh, where there were three black boys and all three of us apparently were asked to remain in kindergarten and repeat it because we weren't emotionally mature enough. Right. Mm. There was something they saw in the way in which we interacted with the people that they marked as not ready to move on to first grade. My parents came together and they were um, at that point I was in public school and they and they made a decision. They were like, well, look, if you're going to make him repeat kindergarten, I'm pulling him out of public school and I'm putting him in in a Catholic school. And that's actually how my educational trajectory shifted early on, mm. because one of the first things that I learned was that my experience, even if I did the right things, even if I was very excited about school, um, even if I had a black teacher in this case, I could still be put in, in a compromising position. And that oftentimes the things that we think about around school aren't just what kids do, aren't what they say, aren't about their dedication, but it's actually about these larger structures. And that's kind of one of the first places where I started to think about school differently. I thought about it differently as I moved through my own path and everybody in my Catholic school who was black or brown um, was instructed to go over to a trailer on the side and work on reading and work on this different type of instruction. And and I recognize that now as very much looking at the children who are non-white and saying they have special needs, right? Mm. You don't have to have a test. Just by virtue of being here, we think there's something, quote, wrong with you. And so those were some of the earliest things that shifted my thinking around education. So I've always been pretty critical, right? I study schools because I know that schools are meant to provide 
uh, an opportunity for education, but schools are fundamentally limited. They're often used to control, they're used to contain, they're used to indoctrinate, and they are used to maintain systems of power. So for me, I think that this pandemic has simply reminded me that if we're not careful, schools will do exactly what they're meant to do, teach you how to be in place, teach you how to listen, teach you how not to question. But education itself has to transcend those school walls. And so some of the greatest learning that I've done has been tied to schools, but outside of them, has been tied to communities, but outside of buildings. And so I think this pandemic now, if if we're careful, it provides us an opportunity to build up our, our actual education and learning and also rethink schools and, and figure out if they are what we need or if they have ever fully actualized the dream that many folks have imagined them to be. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for that story. And in, in hearing that one is just very kindred with the, the, the like meta conversation we're trying to have here of, of questioning this institution and in asking these questions that are rooted in all of our experience. Cause school is one of the few things that just about everybody has experienced in some form or fashion. Um, so building from these experiences to this larger body of knowledge, whether it is through formal study or through like organizing work or through movement building to start to build a, a, a more coherent radical vision of, of what we want. But I want to go back to your experience a little bit because we talk about school as just that, as you named it, as this socializing space to maintain systems of power. And so often we kind of limit that conversation to public schools as doing that. Uh, but in my family, that, that same choice of it feels like there are other institutions outside of the public school systems that give young Black people a little bit of a better environment, even though it's still within this meta system. And in having this conversation, the the trajectory of Catholic schools for Black people is something that we have not talked about. Because um, <laughs> I think it's easy to understand when you're talking about like a state system of bureaucracy, how that is intended to like place people. Uh, but how do some of these other school systems that operate like tangentially, uh, such as the Catholic schools, both my parents at some point like had to leave public school and go to Catholic school and they got kicked out of there and go back this kind of bouncing back and forth that I think happened that's right, that's right. after, you know, folks were looking for options in the mid to late 20th century. Um, so has your study beyond your experience talked a little bit about how the Catholic school system places black people throughout education? Yeah. So, I mean, Catholic schools, we don't talk about them much now because they're kind of out of vogue, right? In many ways, they got replaced by charters. Exactly. But right. I think they're one of the the original roots. Um, and, and, and I mean, roots as in uh, the basis, but also routes as in routes that you travel that Black folks have tried to navigate towards getting better schooling. And so for my family, the choice around Catholic school was I grew up in a place called West Haven, Connecticut, right? And the nickname for West Haven was Waste Haven, right? And it was the idea that if you were to go through the schooling and the options that were available, you probably get far less than what you expected and you would waste potential. And so my parents were like, hey, look, well, let's put them in Catholic school. We know that Catholic schools tend to be smaller. We know that Catholic schools have this kind of like moral character education going on. We know that Catholic schools seem to be a thing that get people closer to college. And so they rushed me to Catholic school because it gave them an alternative. But Catholic school was still often run in a way that was designed 
not often for children and certainly not for black children. <laughs> right. So I can, <laughs> you know, like, so, so, so Silly rabbit, the school isn't for kids. <laughs> That's right. It just, it just wasn't. <laughs> like unabashedly too. <laughs> right. They were like, no, 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 no. Like yeah, there's, there's no running, there's no playing. You can't do this. And I'm like, well, guess what kids do? They do all of those things. Um, and, and one of the first lessons for me, even understanding how race functioned, um, being in a space that was predominantly black and white and with some folks who were Latinx, particularly Puerto Rican, I can remember First Communion. First Communion was kind of like a big thing around the school. And it was like, well, hey, are you going to do First Communion? And it was a conversation that all of the white kids were having and none of the black kids were having and only a couple of the brown kids were having. And it turned out that First Communion became this occasion where those racial lines became very clear mm. because the priest would literally, and, and, and at this point I'm like, well, I wouldn't want to be in this position, but the priest would literally invite people up and place a wafer into their mouth. And so all the white kids got up and lined up in mass and received this wafer and all the black kids sat on the bench. Mm. And I can remember on one day during mass, there was a, a, a Puerto Rican kid that I went to school with, Alex, who got up and he went and got communion. And I was like, <gasps> Alex got up. And Alex actually got up and got communion because he was Catholic, but he didn't go to the Roman Catholic church that everyone else went to. He went to the Catholic church where other folks were Puerto Rican went. And he still got chastised for that. And folks were like, oh, my gosh, he's going to get kicked out of school. But there was this boundary around race, around ethnicity, around culture that religion didn't actually transcend. It was actually like, mm -hmm. no, this is a space that's marked for white folks, right? And when you do something outside of that, even if you have the proper credentials, it's punishable. And so when we think about Catholic schools in the 1980s and 90s, there was a lot of research that came out. Folks like Valerie Lee wrote about Catholic schools and the common good. And Catholic schools were these powerful engines for change and mobility. But one of the things that mattered most about Catholic schools and much like charter schools is that they're really selective. Mm -hmm. They get to pick who they want and who they don't. And Catholic schools in particular, if you didn't have the finances, you could be there one day and go on the next, right? That selectivity means a lot. It also means that Catholic schools weren't places where they were really thinking about how do we design schools around children. Instead, they were saying, how do we design schools around the vision of an archdiocese, around the vision of a religion? So my textbooks look like the textbooks that we talk about in public school and all up over the places where everybody who mattered was white and every religious figure somehow, even though they were in the middle of Palestine, looked like they dropped right out of Italy, right? <laughs> And so I think that Catholic schools, public schools, um, charter schools, most schools are places of control. Most schools are places that have um, multiple competing agendas at once. Catholic schools became so predominant because there was an idea that there needed to be an education that was moralistic, that had a religious basis, that pr uh, provided certain tenets. But oftentimes those are agendas of adults and not necessarily agendas that align with kids nor do they often teach kids to be their fullest selves. Yeah. What we're heading towards is what one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about, because so much of the conversation that we've had previously on the show, both in the suite and overall, because we're so place-based, is about Chicago. Um, and, you know, these conversations around those dynamics and, and who schools are meant for and what, in what intention they have does kind of stay in this context of a major metropolitan city where you have your public schools, emergence of charter schools, uh, the stratification that private and Catholic schools create. And that's kind of been our bubble. With also um, the large city bureaucracy framework that we kind of even talked about with the New York-Chicago mm -hmm, connection. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, you know, we know that 
the same word can mean different things in different contexts. So a public school in a wealthy suburb means something really different from a public school in a city because of how tax bases are all, all, all the dynamics so that we, we think of things as being the same, but they function so differently. In having these conversations in your scholarship, what are some of the like distinctions or misconceptions that you often have to remind people about mm. like what a school means over here means something different from what it means over here. And how do we avoid, yeah, those pitfalls of assuming that a word means the same thing for the same, for different students? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And, and, and a complicated question because like for me, schools become a common denominator in people's minds because most of us, and you know, almost everyone will be like, Oh yeah, I attended them. I can remember my teacher, but even the schools that we attended, we had very asymmetrical experiences, right? So we may remember, oh, the school that I went to, it was great. Like, I love the sports teams. We had a lot of, like, AP classes. It's what put me on the road to go to Tufts, right? But we don't think about the Black and Latinx kids who never had access to those AP Shots classes. Shots fired at Tufts. <laughs> <laughs> I love the jumbos. I love the jumbos. But yeah, <laughs> Tufts, yeah, you know, <laughs> and those are the like, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, folks, folks don't often recognize what's happening across the aisle to other to other kids, right? Or you may have schools where, like, yeah, you have field trips, but you never recognize that the kids that always happen to be sick on the days of field trips were the kids who had fewer dollars, right? And schools weren't paying for field trips. They were saying, hey, parents, do it, right? And so you may remember when you went to the state capitol, but you don't remember your three classmates who never experienced that. And so for me, even within schools, there are grand differences of what school feels like, what classes you attend, who you eat lunch with, what, what, what experiences you have. But also, as you get a little bit wider, it gets even more complex, right? So sometimes you're like, oh, gosh, all I want to do is get out of Chicago. Like, it's too big. There's too many people. There's, you get lost in the sauce, right? You know, and, and so whether I'm going to a, a large high school or, or a smaller school, like, once I make it across that boundary, once I get outside of the city proper and I get into the Chicagoland area, things will be sweeter. Well, the question is, first, for whom will they be sweeter, right? I always think that when we talk about spaces outside of central cities, which we typically call suburbs, we connect them to this idea of the American dream. Mass suburbanization in the U.S. began in the 1950s, and there were communities that cropped up in areas that were formerly farmland. And this process of suburbanization was also a process of racialization. It meant the suburbs got marked white and cities got marked black. It meant suburbs got marked middle class and affluent and cities got marked poor. And these are kind of the images that got deeply implanted in our heads, right? They got implanted through TV. They got implanted by movies. They got implanted by books. So much so that sometimes you have folks who even beef and be like, wait, there's black folks in the suburbs? And I'm like, yeah, there are and there have been. In fact, there have always been, right? Yeah. There actually, a, there's a history of black suburbs that existed even prior to white suburbanization that just kind of get written off the map. Man, right? white people still still suburbs too. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, Andrew, we said, you know, um, social historians and social scientists have done a far better job of keeping black folks out of the suburbs than actually urban planners ever did. Right? <laughs> the histories that we write determine what we see. Right. And so this white suburbanization meant folks who had money uh, and who were white moved out and the city looked different. But the truth of the matter is that if you were to go around Chicago and look at the variety of suburbs that were there, you would even say like, oh, dang, you know what I thought 
was one type of suburb may be different, right? So it could be Country Club Hills. It could be Homewood. It could be a whole different set of experiences than you imagined in your mind. Mm. And for me, suburban space is important to think about because in 2020, more black kids attend schools in suburban areas and in central cities. More students of color are educated in the suburbs and in central cities. Wow. And so that is fundamentally even a difference from when I grew up. So it also means that if I want to know what a school look like for black kids, for Latinx kids, for immigrant kids, right? Because more immigrants are located in suburban places than cities now. Cities got expensive. Them folks whose parents and grandparents moved out to the suburbs and bought houses and accrued capital, they moved back into the city and they made the city less livable, less affordable. And so now suburbs become a destination for black folks, a destination for brown folks, a destination for immigrant folks. And then we never even stop to study their schools. We assume because you made it, right, that someone made it up the ladder, so to speak, out into these areas that things are sweeter. And my work always says, well, for whom? Because a city may be large and bureaucratic and difficult to manage, but a lot of these suburbs were designed to be fragmented or designed to be small communities. And particularly these white suburbs were designed to have white residents, white control, and white power. So what happens when all the residents now are brown? What happens when the majority are black? Do the people who had power keep power or do they relinquish it? Mm. Well, usually power doesn't relinquish itself. Yeah. Instead, you'll have folks who are governing school boards, folks who are mayors, folks who are running police forces who look different than the residents, but they treat them in the same ways. Mm. So we look at a place like Ferguson mm. and the Ferguson Commission says, oh my gosh, they literally ticket more black people than there are black people here. <laughs> what? Yeah, <laughs> because they learned how to control and police black folks. Oh, my gosh. Ferguson's now got his first black mayor. Yeah. And Ferguson's been black for 30 plus years. Mm. Oh, my gosh. The school board is governed by folks who don't send kids to those schools. Yeah, because they've been committed to a form of domination that says I can tell you what to do, but you don't get to set the agenda for yourself. Mm. If we're not careful, this mythology of the suburbs as better will actually miss the experiences that we face, particularly um, as more poor folks are located in the suburbs, more black folks, brown folks, immigrant folks. In a messed up way, it is the next frontier of an old reality. How does that um, fragmentation that you talked about and the planned fragmentation of these communities make it harder to study these things? Well, so the first thing, if you decide to study a suburban community and you go in and you tell folks that you're going to study their town, first thing I want to let you know is my town is different. (laughs) They're all different. They're all special. They're all unique. They're not like their next door neighbor, right? (laughs) Particularly when when folks have moved there by choice. So they're like, no, 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 no. We're not like them. We're much better. I'm like, okay, well, tell me about it, right? Suburbs have a commitment to engineering images, Right. Mm -hmm. The city, we know sometimes uh, part of its diversity is its pull. Right. So someone's like, oh, like, I love Chicago because I I love to go to the lake. Right. Um, But I don't necessarily hang out in the wild hunts. Right. You know, like there's different ways of how space is managed and how images come into conflict. Suburbs historically have literally had to market themselves. So they've had PR around them. What do neighborhoods look like? How were they planned? Can you walk on a sidewalk? Where are schools located? Who's a part of it, right? And these images hold memory, but they also hold trauma. So sometimes you're the first person moving into a place. 
And what happens in the 1950s is that your place gets firebombed. But in, in, in the 2020s, as folks talk about planned communities and they talk about diversity, they look at your town and they make a documentary like America to Me, and they brush past the racial terrorism. They brush past the fact that it's two districts that are next to each other that have uh, gross inequalities around socioeconomic status, but have been brought together in a school system. Mm. It means that you think you have more diversity, you have more integration, that you have more control than you really do. Because oftentimes these separate entities have decided that they'll control everything that happens within their borders. They'll figure out what taxes are, they'll figure out what police are, what municipal services are, and they'll figure out what schools are supposed to look like. So if I decide I want to make a school that is centered on liberation through um, uh, implementing uh, a praxis of abolition. So we want to do away with police. We want to do away with um, other forms of carceral control, even if they come through social workers. In the suburbs, folks are like, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down. We have a nice town. We have a nice place. It's not like over there, right? The suburbs often convince you you can customize, but that customization exists in a very limited bubble. It's kind of the illusion of choice, the same way we talk about consuming also. It's like, look at all these options, but it, the, the control there is presenting them. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and those choices get even more limited when you're not white. Yeah. So go to a space and be black and say, no, 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 no. I think we actually need to do things differently. For the past 20 years, You've been suspending black kids at a rate that's three times, four times, five times, six times the rate of white students. And folks are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, I mean, we can figure out if there's something going on, but I can explain to you why those kids got suspended. No, you don't actually have to tell me why they got suspended. I know it's racism. It's white supremacy. It's anti-blackness. No, 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 no. But those kids, they're family. Mm-mm-mm. Right. So many times folks convince themselves that the mechanisms and machinations of power don't manifest in suburbs when they're actually most at home there. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So so much of uh what you're saying makes me think of how information channels and flows shape the way you know communities are organized. Uh I, I have a little bit of a personal experience. I, I imagine you may have even heard about it. Are you familiar with Albion, Michigan and Marshall, Michigan? Yep, yep, yeah, yep, so yep. Uh, through an uh, organization called Free Rights Arts and Literacy, in the last couple of years, I've done like three or four teaching artist residencies in their like middle schools and high schools. And for folks who are not familiar, which I imagine is everybody else except for me, <laughs> be it Leroux, uh, Albion and Marshall, Michigan are two small towns that share a border um, in Michigan. And uh, Marshall is the more traditional American dream aesthetic su- suburb that is like 97% white. Um, um, and Albion, Michigan is a former industrial town, 40%, uh, I think, black, 60% people of color. Um, and basically all of Albion's municipal spaces collapsed over the last few years and got absorbed into Marshall, Michigan. Uh, and, and what I saw in this teaching is, one, there was this attempt to like figure out what do we do, right? So basically what ended up happening is... Albion children would be in these makeshift alternative schools within the school. Um, And, you know, it it basically was this carceral space. But at the same time, 
<laughs> in my experience, it was better than what I saw in a regular classroom mm-hmm. in Chicago public schools, mm-hmm. right? So it, it it's this wild thing of some of these same dynamics are there, but it's it's better than the norm of what I saw in the the school closest to my home. Uh, but at the same time, there was this documentary being made, and I brought up the information channels, is that a lot of these suburbs, unlike major cities, don't have major newspapers or don't That's have right. a news channel that is basically creating these propaganda narratives where, like you said, in, in your check-in, right, that the the mayor of New York is making all of these claims or doing all of these PR stunts around the schools that are happening in this larger information channel. Uh, but what I learned in Marshall is actually the community is the municipality, right? Like it is almost a one-to-one mm-hmm, scale. Mm-hmm. And once there was a documentary about the history of racial divide, they basically like <laughs> had this, this like, you know, old school, like shit kicking town hall, uh, so offended um, and that their, their children were harmed by being told that racism helped shaped this city and this community. And so I want to go back to, to that idea of, you know, in the small town, it is the newsletter or the parent circle in terms of how information is being shaped. Uh, and But you as a researcher, if you're coming to Chicago or L.A. or New York or Atlanta, um, there's a little bit more, um, I want to say, like, documentation that you're working with. Uh, mm. And so how much does the control of information in these smaller spaces and therefore kind of a more internal decision-making process shape the way white supremacy is organized? Because we always think of the big mayor as the way that this thing happens. Yeah, no, that's that's a, that's a great question, right? And I think uh, I always say, or, or it's always said, and I think it's probably right, um, the devil and the divine is in the details, right? And so when you're trying to figure out how things got the way they were, one of the things that we do historically is sometimes we look back on the archive. Now, in a place like Chicago, in a place like New York, there have probably been people who have been documenting the archive informally and formally for decades. So you may be able to go to a particular library and figure out what do Chicago public schools think about in 1955 and 1975. In a lot of these smaller places, the archive is literally being controlled by one person. So maybe there was a narrative of what to do about schools when they were desegregated. And there were town hall meetings where they said, I don't want Negro children here. And there were decisions that were literally made about where black folks could and couldn't be. But those things are out of view and out of reach to most folks. So it can't even it hasn't been digitized. And sometimes you go and you speak to the librarian at the local library and they're like, well, wait, should I give you this information? So even being able to trace the roots of racism becomes uh, more difficult. But it also means that that control of information historically, it also manifests itself in more contemporary spaces. So you may be uh, uh, a black family from Adrian who's in the schools and Marshall, and you're trying to figure out how is it that I can make sure that my child gets access to a, a high quality curriculum? Because you know what? Lo and behold, it's a shocker. All the black kids tend to not be in the most rigorous college prep classes, but I want to get them in. And you decide that you're going to go through a very formal process to petition them in and maybe get them into the next class. But it turns out year one, it doesn't work out. Year two, it doesn't work out. Then year three, you speak to somebody at the grocery store who's white and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. You don't use a petition. Yeah, of course, there's a form online that you use. But here's a person you need to speak to. You speak to Mr. Mack. And Miss J, and after you have a good conversation with them, they'll work it out for you. Oftentimes in these spaces, there are formal routes to get to a thing. And when we are present, we'll engage in the formal process and believe in it. And then you learn that everyone who's actually been moving and shaking has gone around the formal process, right? And the formal process is literally the distraction 
that if you have the social capital, if you're read as someone who's caring and desirable, they'll do things for you. So oftentimes those rules that people rely on in suburban space, they bend them for particular sets of family. The catch is if you're not white, if you're not affluent, they're much less likely to bend the rules for you. But that information becomes critical because sometimes you can, in understanding how information travels and flows, why certain classes look certain ways, why certain sides of town uh, get better resources than other sides of town, even in suburban spaces. Because, yeah, it happens in New York, it happens in Chicago, where you're like, yo, no one's picking up the trash. But it happens in Long Island, too, where the black houses get skipped over, right? And so these are the kind of things where information and understanding how power operates can help us find locations for organizing and building a base in response to actually get something that looks more like justice in these places than what they're often designed for. So you mentioned Long Island, and we were talking about the the timeline of this a little bit and the establishment of what these spaces are, both in myth and in practice. In looking at the, the planning of suburban communities, obviously that can happen in a lot of different ways. In those kind of initial formations, in the language of these segregated spaces, where did education fit into how they sold it? Um, and how are you seeing that language evolve as the demographic shift, you know, as part of kind of the both the PR, but also the actual like uh, suburban planning process? So the history of suburbanization itself is one that I think we've gotten much better at documenting. So you may have over time seen red lining maps from HOLC that tell you which areas where loans could be given, where um, the, the, the value of a house would increase or areas that were marked in red loans would not be given because, uh, they, they would say that the value of the home wouldn't increase and those tended to be black areas. So we have that kind of documentation. And surprisingly, they didn't. It's <laughs> <laughs> surprised, right. They didn't. They say, and hey, these and in 2020, <laughs> right, the, the, the share of that gap actually is increasing over time, right? Mm-hmm. So um, check out work by folks like uh, uh, Jacob Faber, who have kind of like documented how those maps hold over and amplify, right? Because it's not just one time, it's an evolution of them. But the thing that's interesting about schools is that originally as suburbs were developed, schools were not a central amenity. They were actually an afterthought. Mm -hmm. They were like, well, if we can build these places where folks have space, where folks have uh, uh, can choose their own municipal services, it'll be better. And then they realize, holy crap, a lot of these people who are moving with kids, their first question is about schools and we haven't thought through it. Right. (laughs) And so it's actually in the 1960s where they start to become a very big part of why People move to the suburbs. But the catch is this. Oftentimes they were saying, hey, these schools will be great. They'll be perfect. Um, And parents will be like, what will they be like? Well, we'll figure it out as we go. Right. But but at least they'll be white. That we can (laughs) promise you. (laughs) Exactly. There was an idea like, hey, look, you stay where you are. You're probably going to be in school with some black kids. If you come out here, no problem. Right. So it's the same story in Penn Hills outside of Pittsburgh. It's the same story um, in metropolitan Detroit with Sterling Heights. It's the same thing. Like you go around West Hartford, the same narrative. Like, hey, look, let's build these white spaces, right? It's kind of like Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. And it's like, well, well, we'll build a school. But the only guarantee you get is that it'll be white. And the folks who live here will be there, right? And so schools become one of the things that folks now start searching for, right? We're, we're, we're in a world where there's all this data. The No Child Left Behind Act did many terrible things. If you're a researcher, you're like, the one thing it did was it gave us more access to data. <laughs> now, the problem with data 
is that we love to dumb down data because the more data we have now on real estate sites, it's like, all right, well, look up your prospective uh, school district and see what grade they get. Do they get an A, a B, a C or a D or an F? And people literally look at these grades as if they measure something about the quality of schools. Those grades are highly correlated with rates of poverty and rates of historic investment or divestment. Schools often reflect the economic conditions and environment that we have and the history that we have, not what they actually do with kids. But folks start to use those grades. And now people are using grades to say, well, I'll go here, but I won't go here. I'll go there, but not go there. Right. And so now we're in a moment where schools become the driving force of where people chase this dream. But it's actually a dream. It's almost like the rhythm of it is off because you may run to a district because it's a high performing district. But that's based on data from 10 years ago. And by the time you get there, you learn that the superintendent has left. Uh, the taxation situation has changed. They're under potentially state control. And sometimes and oftentimes folks are like, wow, I got sold a bill of goods that was false, which is kind of like the narrative of being black in America, the narrative of being non-white in America. And it happens in these suburban spaces because oftentimes what these communities have done is that they built up a community that was exclusive. And when that exclusivity got threatened, they left and they left folks with a ticking time bomb. They were like, well, now you have a boutique community with a high tax rate, with a lot of needs, but we've actually bankrupted the infrastructure for the past 30 years before we bounced. So enjoy. <laughs> Again, talk about, you know, pick, picking up the trash. It's like, who's left to, to handle the actual reconciliation of these conflicts? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. My, my question uh, to kind of pivot. Pivot! But from that place of there's been this divestment investment, there's been in a lot of these suburbs like turnover. Um, so the the all white populations of the 50s and 60s, they've now gone somewhere. Else. I don't know. They, they're taking back over the cities or just have every or generation. Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. They're, that's right. they're always on the move. Um, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> nothing, nothing like a good abandonment <laughs> to keep us going. So in these spaces, right, the, there are these fiscal issues, but then there's also in some places, I would imagine, somewhat of a clean slate. Uh, are you starting to see mm -hmm. any fugitivity or or recreation or radical reformation? You know, I use D Detroit kind of as like the emblem, right? Like there was this abandonment and now Detroit is kind of a global beacon for what urban farming looks like or what recreating the, the urban landscape could look like in some of these recently abandoned suburbs. Are we seeing any of that fugitivity or, or, or reformation? Yeah. Um, so I think there is fugitivity. But one of the things that I have to say um, with all forms of fugitivity, it's never a clean slate. Mm -hmm. Once someone has escaped a thing and moves and begins to build, they're still settling in a place that has a history. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the consequences of that place and the powers of that place come roaring back. So whether you're talking about a city like Detroit, where we build out urban farms, but then we see Pete Carmanos and other folks come in and say, wait, 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 wait. We're taking back this land. Wait, 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 wait. You have that for a moment. But really the question, you know, there's a question that uh, Malcolm and other folks ask fundamentally, like, do you control and own the land, right? Having the land and using the land and bringing value to the land and words of the land to the community is different than you actually controlling it. 
And in a similar way, we see that in some suburban spaces too, when folks have abandoned. So I, one of the places I study is Yonkers, right? And folks don't really think about Yonkers as a suburb, right? Like People think say, about I like- I think a lot about Yonkers. I grew up right next to Yonkers. I think a lot about Yonkers. Ah, where'd you grow up? I grew up South Riverdale, 227, just on the other side of one of those divides. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, no. Oh, yeah, yeah. We, uh, I mean, we can, we can go Yonkers all day. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to go Yonkers. Let's go. <laughs> Excellent, excellent, right? So folks think of Yonkers and they're like, all right, so it's DMX, it's the lots, it's just like, it's the Bronx 2.0, right? And 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 of course, the irony, as you point out, um, Riverdale is the Bronx, but Riverdale is not the Bronx that people imagine. Riverdale is uh, more affluent and more white um, and is, is actually a community of choice, right? Folks love to be in Riverdale, but if someone said, hey, are you choosing to live in the Bronx? People are like, why would you choose, right? At 15, I did not love being in Riverdale, <laughs> just for the record. <laughs> it's like, this is too far from my friends. The bus takes too long, but, you know. Exactly, it, it, it's grown exactly, yeah, exactly. Grown, so um, people don't think of places like Yonkers as suburban, but they were absolutely suburban. Yonkers has one of the longest standing battles around uh, housing and school segregation. Mm-hmm. In fact, they have the unique uh, uh, badge of being the municipality that got found to be in violation of segregation of housing and schools at the same time by the federal government. Like, we know it happened everywhere, but they were actually the folks who threw the stones and were not able to hide their hands. Call it a double-double. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> Putting up stats, baby. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and and when they started to do the work of desegregation, when they were ordered to desegregate, right, the schools kind of said, all right, we'll figure something out. And they did some changes around school segregation, but the schools in Yonkers, surprise, surprise, are still segregated. But around the housing, the city actually fought desegregation from 1985 into the 2000s. There was a moment where Yonkers literally almost went bankrupt because they refused to cite housing for low-income people outside of one square mile. They were like, nope, nope, we'll only do it there. We can't find it anywhere else. And white residents were up in arms about the prospect of there being affordable housing, affordable housing read as non-white, right? And they were like, the only place we can cite is in this mile and a quarter. Anywhere else, it's untenable. You can't do the North, you can't do the West, right? We can't do anything. And you saw people in Yonkers flood out and flood out and flood out. And so what it meant was many portions of Yonkers poverty concentrated and you can go Yonkers exists like almost on a, 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 a in quadrants. There are four mm-hmm. quadrants, uh, northwest, northeast, southeast, southwest into the south side of town. Um, it is black and it is brown. The north side of town, it still retains some character around whiteness, around affluence. But on the south side of Yonkers, people are literally figuring out how do we actually build what we need? How do we re-envision possibility? So um, in, in working with and talking to activists on the south side of Yonkers, thinking about how they actually get their voice heard around education. How do they build schools that actually educate? Let me rewind. Right. So I'll tell you a brief story. So on the south side of Yonkers, there was a community group that was doing some work around um, uh, youth development and empowerment. And what they were doing was a series of neighborhood cleanups. And as they started to talk to folks in the neighborhood, they were like, hey, what do you think we need over here? And folks were like, we need a school, like a good school. And they were like, well, what do you mean by a school? And they went out and they started to survey and knock on the doors of, uh, of, of neighbors and say, well, what would a good school look like? They were like, well, it would prepare us for jobs that actually exist. It would have child care. It would be green. It would, and, and, and they, they literally collected all of this information 
And they located a school that was in the neighborhood that had been abandoned since the 1990s. And this is probably around uh, uh, 2010. And they went to the city and they said, hey, look, we have an idea for a school. We have community backing. We've even cleaned up the grounds, right? Cleanup went so well, like even the folks from the lock showed up and were like taking photo ops like, yo, y'all got to like get down with this work that they're doing. And the city was like, hey, look, okay, we can't give you the building, but what we can do is we can create like a call for proposals, right? <laughs> now, here's the catch. <laughs> you're talking about the south side of Yonkers. You're talking about a black community. You're talking about a community that is, quote, economically depressed, that has been divested in. And when the call for proposals went out, the community group was the leader. The community group had the best bid. And at the 11th hour, a developer swooped in. Mm-hmm. What did the developer offer? The developer said, this is an economically depressed area. I want to create housing that helps restore value to the area, that diversifies the area. And the city said, oh, I'm sorry, community group. We can't actually give you that school. Uh, but this developer has been working in Westchester and they can really return some of the luster uh, uh, to Yonkers. And, and so you saw uh, the community mobilized. You saw the community fill up the chambers of city council. You saw the community fight. And I wish I could tell you that the community won and got their school that they designed. They did not. But what the community group didn't do was stop there and say, OK, we didn't get the building for the school. So we're going to stop educating. Instead, they went right back to that community and said, all right, if we can't have this school, what can we build that will be accessible? So folks need tech skills, folks need job skills. And they shifted some of their focus and created a co-working space and an incubator space. So they said, hey, look, there are some folks around here who like to work from home, who like to do the tech thing. So y'all come in by day and you rent out space so you can sit on your laptop so you can drink your coffee and so that you can, you know, uh, uh, click away and build the next startup. But here's the catch. If you come in here and do that, you also at night have to do workshops for local residents. Mm. You got to help them with job preparation. You got to help them learn how to code. You've got to make sure that um, uh, that the work that is done in this community is supported. So by day, there was a co-working space. By night, it was a space for education and a space for community meetings. Right. So as the sanctuary movement and Yonkers began to build up, they met in that space. As folks started to do work around ending police terrorism, they met in that space. See, that space, which was known as a power lab, was probably far more powerful than any school. Right. It did far more educating and work on liberation than what that school building would have done had they gotten it in the first place. Mm. Because the truth of the matter is that sometimes a building and sometimes a charter from a city can limit how you understand mm-hmm. yourself. So now the folks who work out of the part, power lab also partner with local schools and say, we have a whole different model of how we do tech of how we do engagement, of how we do community. Now they're building out shops where people learn, but these are places of fugitivity, of spaces of reclamation, but they're always spaces of contestation. Mm. And they weren't saying we want to build a school. They were saying we want to build space for, for education. And that's when, exactly when right. the school wasn't the space, that doesn't mean that, like you said, you stop there. Um, just to for for folks who are interested in learning more about kind of that historical fight around desegregation, I don't know if you've, I'm sure you have in your research, but on HBO they did this um, kind of a limited series called Show Me a Hero, which Show I loved hero, yeah. and I couldn't believe that anybody else watched it because it was like, <laughs> oh, this is maybe only made for like me and seven other people and <laughs> two of them are on this call. Um, but that's it's, right, that's it's right. a brilliance by the guy who made The Wire and Treme and a bunch of other people telling the story of that fight in the 80s and 90s in Yonkers. I'm curious, sometimes uh, 
when people really study the thing, they like get mad at the TV show. Is there anything that uh, that that show messed up that you want to come on the record and, and throw smoke, or was it pretty much on point? Well, so show me the hero, the HBO series gives a decently good representation. If you are a white male storyteller like David Simon, mm-hmm. telling the narrated story of Yonkers from the lens of a white woman journalist who wrote the book, Show Me a Hero. Mm-hmm. However, uh-huh. one of the things that makes me um, uh, really concerned about even the narration of Show Me a Hero is that the mayor at the center of it, Nick Wasisco, kind of gets represented as if he was someone who was um, there to stop the, 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 the racism machine. He's a mayor who gets elected in the midst of this uh, desegregation case. And initially he says he's not going to desegregate schools. He's not going to desegregate neighborhoods. And then he has like a, a come to Jesus moment, so to speak. One, Nick Wasisco wasn't quite as straight line like that, right? Didn't just kind of go from one to the other, like, oh, I realize racism is bad. Two, Nick Wasisco's life ended pretty damn tragically, right? He died by suicide. And Yonkers continued to fight desegregation for decades after his death. So even if Wasisco is the hero, then maybe the city didn't learn as much as it should have from the hero to begin with, right? I think it is a wonderful series to get a sense of a place like Yonkers and, you know, everything from talking about Schlobaum to thinking about urban planning. Um, it's much better in the beginning than the end. Uh, but yeah, so, and I'm glad you, you watched Show Me a Hero. Nobody wants to talk I to know. me about Show Me a Hero. I'm telling you, uh, you three your, of the seven people. people right here. That's, I'm glad we, were, glad we connected. Uh, can I just give two quick Yonkers facts? For sure. Sure. Uh, where, I, uh, where I went to Hebrew school and synagogue is in Yonkers, um, mm-hmm. including in a tent behind the Park Hill Racket Club, which is where we had services, uh, which you may have uh-huh. passed as one of the, like, in that you're talking about the like lost luster, but up on the hill, big homes. Uh, yeah, I know exactly. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, they didn't really want us in the Racket Club, but they would let us be in a tent outside. Um, <laughs> and then also when I was a kid, I was a big baseball fan and a big Yankees fan. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> they were trying to build a, a minor league baseball stadium in Yonkers. It was part of this like, renewal economic engine uh and i got wind that uh orlando hernandez the pitcher for the yankees el duque one of my heroes was going to be there and uh we waited online for hours in this parking lot and we were the last people (laughs) before like the, the at the front of the line oh no and they were like no he's packing it up and uh and and then we found out that he was going to be at a, uh, a, I think it was like a T-Mobile store. And so we ran, we <laughs> sprinted, and uh, one thing led to another. And I did end up meeting Orlando Hernandez, the story <laughs> okay. ends, ends well, and I still have that baseball. Those are my Yonkers fun facts. <laughs> Very fun facts. They Very saved fun this fun podcast. Were, were, for sure. So, um, <laughs> I'm just for, reminiscing yeah. on Yonkers. <laughs> for the sake of uh, your time, but I also think it's fun to do to the brain. Uh, I'm going to end with a little bit of a dealer's choice. Uh, so I'm going to give you two questions that don't feel too related to me. So you can either pick one of them or you can kind of make a gumbo out of it. Um, Would you call this the segment if we had more time? If we had a little more time. Yes, this is exactly it. This is if we had more time. I just created the segment and I already forgot about it. Yes, if we had more time. <laughs> uh, so yeah, my my two questions that, I, that, that are still uh, sitting with me is one, the organization and perpetuation of white supremacy is not as binary as we make it in the sense that I say, you know, 
historically uh, black people have gotten in positions of power and made decisions that continue or expand racial capitalism in ways that are, are harmful to black communities. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about the, you know, the black neoliberal thread in education. Mm-hmm. You know, I lie in Chicago. We have a black mayor, a black police superintendent, uh, a black state's attorney, and a black CEO of the Chicago public schools. And I don't see any like liberatory progressive push coming from mm-hmm. this body of black decision makers. And I'm sure that connects with what's been happening around the country. You know, I know like the Cory Booker elk of charterization, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Black neoliberalism mm-hmm. that seems like we get in control, uh, but there's not a lot of we when we are there uh, happening. So so what what, right. what does that do to you or what what is your thinking or study tell you about that dynamic? And then you can maybe cross-pollinate that with, you know, the time we're in now of we're talking about school as this building, uh, but so many of these buildings are not open right now or can't be open in the way that they are. So That's as somebody right. uh, who's done so much study, uh, are there opportunities for some of your visions or your ideas of ways to progress our systems uh, that may that may feel a little bit more palatable or tangible now that people aren't actually in the building and we don't have to start from scratch in our imagination of what if we weren't all going to these schools because now everybody's not going to these schools. So yeah, black neoliberalism and like the opportunity of quarantine, social distancing in terms of what you see being needed in the education space. I wish we had more time and shit. Oh, that's that's a really easy question. Thank you for such a softball that's, for yeah. the. <laughs> if we had more time, you take um, as much time as you want. I just want to give you what you what I'm thinking, and you can condense or elongate. <laughs> so, first off, one of the things that happens when people meet me or like read something I wrote, they're like, "Oh, you're black. Like you're into like empowerment. You're into like education. So like." You should meet my friend. <laughs> and who is your friend? Their friend is always somebody who has founded a charter school, who is working with Democrats for freedom, justice, and equality through educational options. Like, you name it, right? That's always their friend, right? And our conversations are usually pretty short. They're short for a couple of reasons. One, the emergence of the educational entrepreneur, it troubles my heart in so many ways. First, most times when I meet your black friend who's an educational entrepreneur, they're a black man. Mm. And I'm black, I'm male, and I enjoy it. (laughs) However, the bedrock... (laughs) It's not too bad. The foundation (laughs) of black education and understanding how to educate our children in a multitude of spaces has always been black women. Mm. But the folks who get promoted first... The folks who get the microphone, the folks who get the schools tend to be black men. So that's problem number one for me. I'm like, mm, do you have that space because you are the person who knows the, the, the thing that needs to be known, who has a unique experience? Or do you have that space because we're recreating patriarchy and nothing says black power coaptation like someone who is black and male and talks real good about black people? Right. <laughs> that's number one. Number two, entrepreneurship in and of itself troubles me because it's centered around notions of capitalism. The idea that there would be an innovation that could be identified, that could be captured, that could be commodified and replicated. Now, entrepreneurship is different for me than innovation. 
It's different for me than uh, 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 creativity. It's different for me than actually generating things because the entrepreneur often thinks they own the idea Mm. and own the method. It's a very settler colonial mentality. The fact that you came up with something somehow in your unique way (laughs) and that you've created it, it's worth having and I should pay you for it or we should only give you the money for the magic beans. Most entrepreneurs, most educational entrepreneurs, even if they have success in one place, it is limited success. It's success often built on creaming. It's success often built on selectivity. Mm -hmm. It's success based on pouring money into one aspect to have a return, but not looking at the impact of that thing over time. A lot lot of those stats of 100% of the students get college accepted thing. That's always a That's right. 100% of our kids are going on to college. 100% of our kids have been accepted to college. 100% of our kids, you know, uh, uh, are going to appear in the next Harry Potter film. There's not (laughs) going to be a next Harry Potter film. Same thing, right? Like, we can't hold you accountable to these mythologies of success when, in fact, oftentimes what you're doing is simply pushing kids to do a thing to check a box so you look good. We don't actually know what those kids have learned. We often, when we interrogate it, we realize that a lot of these kids are like, well, listen, I just had to do this so that I can keep my spot, right? I had to do this so it looked like we were doing well when we know all these other things are impacting our lives. So I think about the work of folks like uh, Cesare Warren. I think about uh, Freedom Bloom, uh, his first name is escaping me, right? Who've kind of like interrogated these, these urban academies, right? These entrepreneurs often are like business folks. They'll sell you on why what they've done works, but you can't actually hold their feet to the fire because the current structure of school accountability doesn't allow us access to transparent data mm-hmm. and doesn't allow us access to schools. So we start to have to trust you at your word, and I don't usually trust people at their word. Yeah. <laughs> Generally. Well, <laughs> just across yeah, the board. Right? <laughs> Someone's like, nice to meet you, and you're like, show me the data that proves it. Nice exactly. Yeah. yeah, I'm like, let me, let me see the data. <laughs> and let me see the data that you're not showing me. Exactly. This here says you have 120 students, but I swore there were 200 kids. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and we see it over and over again, right? So even years ago, um, when Jeffrey Canada was becoming the poster child for this um, reinvestment in communities, when he was on American Express commercials, when people talked about the success of the Harlem Children's Zone and what it was doing in the neighborhood and schools. I'm like, well, how come Jeffrey Canada never talks about the first set of schools that he opened and closed? How he fired over 30 teachers and dismissed hundreds of kids back into New York City public schools. How come he never talks about that? They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, no, these folks are very clear that they're only here to market a model of success that makes you think they're successful, right? And so for me, entrepreneurship is a dangerous thing. I think we can innovate, we can create, I think we can generate from communities, but you don't own it. And you darn sure don't try to sell it to somebody else. You try to create opportunities for replication. It it reminds me of something that Eve said in our initial conversation with her at the beginning of the series around so often when people parachute into education with these quote solutions, what they're not taking to, into account is the school as the dumping ground of all of the structural issues that exist outside of that building, mm-hmm. right? So that the reason why a school is struggling is not because the school has a problem. It's because our culture and our society and our political structures have problems and we funnel that into this space and we remove the context and then we blame the teachers, the administrators and the students in that school. Um, and so that you're not going to be able to, you know, uh, innovate your way to educational equity if we live in an unjust and in an unequal 
uh, world outside of that school building. And so I'm, I'm curious for you if there have been examples of, you know, because like you said, innovation is not inherently a problem of innovations or moves or at least conversations that are happening that do take that into account. I know here in Chicago, we've talked a little bit about the sustainable community schools model. Um, but yeah, I'm curious if there are other examples that do bring the outside world into the school for you. Yeah. Um, and those models usually start outside of school and then later incorporate schools, mm. right? So one of the, the mistakes that we make is like, well, how can the school reach into the community? First, empower communities to build the things that they need and reach back to the school, yeah. right? Um, schools tend to have a very narrow prescription of what things should be like. So maybe it's around um, creating the right test scores or maybe it's uh, 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 the right pedigree. Communities deal with everybody who's around, right? They figure out how to manage things from lack of jobs to substance abuse to beautification to block parties, right? So when people in communities are empowered to make their decisions, they actually build different programming. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking of programs that exist that are more based on even how do you talk to young people about not only dealing with interactions with police and, and, and not simply saying like, oh, how do I talk to officers properly? But how do you break down the carceral continuum, right? So there are forms of education and learning that are central that we could reimagine. So in Chicago, I think of things like Project NIA. Mm -hmm. I think of things like Girlfriends. I think of these programs that say, hey, look, if we can figure out how to make sure the community feels empowered, they're going to approach things like discipline very differently, not even from a restorative justice standpoint, from a transformative justice standpoint. If people think differently about violence, we're not just going to talk about violence interruption in the, in the form of guns. We're going to think about gender-based violence, right? right? If we start to think about finances differently, we're not simply going to think about financial literacy and telling people how to save so that they right. can close the wealth gap, which is not why the wealth gap exists. <laughs> Instead, they're going to look at <laughs> they're going to look at money as a tool and an instrument in a larger project, and also question why it has to be the end game, right? Mm -hmm. So, grassroots movements for me, and then grassroots formations bridge things better. So, Bianca Baldridge, who's a super talented sociologist uh, out in Wisconsin, has been doing work around community organizations for some time, right? So, outside of school youth workers. And some of my favorite people to ask about what schools need and what children need are youth workers, because those are folks who are not attached to schools, but are attached to young people. Mm. And centering their voices actually gets us to think very differently about schools and communities, because we do a lot of talking to teenagers. We do a lot of talking to kids. We don't do a lot of good listening. And those youth workers tend to be the first people who can turn on different ears. I got interested in actual education because of working outside of schools. Because I started to talk to kids in the summer about what they wanted to do. And we started to be able to teach things like physics based on water guns. We started <laughs> to be able to teach things around art, right, based on cartoon. Like we met kids where they were at and it created a whole different love of learning. The sad part was that then in September they went back to school and I would get text messages like, Drew, I hate this. Like, why do we have to do this? That lack of creativity that we have in school buildings is often driven from an unwillingness to listen to young people and an unwillingness for the community to transform the schools. And if schools refuse to be transformed, as folks like David Stovall have said, as folks like Bettina Love has said, as folks like Eve Ewing have said, then we're going to have to get rid of the schools. Yeah. Because the schools standing in the way of the progress of the people 
means that we've inverted the order that we need to be in. Mm. I, I have one last question, but Dame, do you have something you want to add before no, that? I'm, I'm good. Actually, I lied. Two last things. And <laughs> we'll get off. Uh, to something that you mentioned earlier, and I think it came through in what you were just saying, um, jumping back to the suburbs a little bit. Mm-hmm. One of the most like disheartening conversations that I saw in the midst of Uprising this summer um, was the kind of romanticization of suburb as akin to an abolitionist mm. utopia, right? So when AOC says, like, you know, it's not hard to imagine what abolition looks like. Abolition looks like a suburb where everybody's needs are met and, you know, the police don't target people in the same way. And we know that, like you mentioned earlier, the root causes of those spaces being inherently violent. Outside of that negative that I just made, let's go to the the kind of future envisioning. And you were getting at this a little bit. As abstract or specific as you want to be, what does a liberatory education space look like to you? Uh, you know, thinking a year, five years, 10 years, 50 years down the line. Hmm. I think the, the first thing that has to be centered in any liberatory educational space is, is a living out of the principle of Ubuntu, right? The idea of the South African philosophy that I am because we are. Your understanding of who you are and how you are linked to others has to generate functionally all action and accountability in a space. So that means action around curriculum, whether it is very formalized or informal. That means accountability. How do we actually deal with what happens when we have a disagreement, but also a commitment to community? Now, educational spaces, oftentimes people end up in them uh, not by choice, but by chance and sorting. Now, liberated educational spaces in some ways can have a degree of choice. You may opt into a collective of folks who are wrestling with how do we rethink punishment and discipline in our communities. You may elect to be in a space where folks are thinking about food apartheid and how do we actually make sure that there is accessible food, not just that is, you know, uh, coming from our farm, but food even when folks who they have no commitment to a green market can get from the local corner store, right? So there has to be a flexibility in there, right? So there's, there is Ubuntu and then two, there's flexibility. We're going to have folks who don't immediately align up with the goal of the thing. We meet people on a spectrum. And so you may come in and say like, "Mm, yeah, I get it. You want to like abolish the police. Cool. But here's my issue with that. Right. And we're going to have to make space for those people to come in and work them to the point of understanding how those systems have come to be. Because oftentimes what people are repeating to you is what they've been taught, what they've learned, what they haven't unlearned. So that flexibility has to be a space of unlearning. And then there has to be a space where we create something anew. And when I say something anew, I don't mean we create something that's never been. In fact, I believe in reaching back and pulling from the examples of our ancestors and figuring out what they did that worked well. But I also mean creating things that operate and work in the spaces that we are in in 2020. Because the truth of the matter is, the better you get at liberation work, the more, as Robin Kelly calls it, the deeper neoliberal capture gets. Because someone will be like, wow, Damon, that's really good. Wow, I love what you do on the Ergo Media. I would love to bring you over to Vice. <laughs> now, here's the thing. There's just a couple of things that you've used in the show. I'd like to see you approach them differently, right? And as you buy into that moment of exposure, as you buy into that expansion of platform, you sell out some of the things that were central. Some of those practices of accountability, some of those practices of community, some of those practices of flexibility, and you trade it for celebrity. 
Fine, I'll cancel the conference calls. Fine, LaRue. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you just right. It's like, well, where are we commitment. gonna take the show? <laughs> yeah, you just yeah. doubled down my commitment to being broke. Let me let me just grab myself. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, where's the money come from? I'm like, the money will come, the money'll come, right? You know, like Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I think if we are committed to liberatory spaces, uh, we have to have real conversations about celebrity about the suck of neoliberal capture and be willing to tug each other's coattails back and say, hey, how do we do this work here and make sure that this place is transformed? So the last thing or one of the last things I want to share is that years ago when I lived in Michigan, I had a chance to meet Grace Lee Boggs and and to, to, to sit at her feet a little bit and meet fantastic organizers. But a couple of years ago, she was in New York um, at a bookstore that is right now closed and I hope will reopen Blue Stockings. And she was talking about her book uh, that she'd done with uh, Scott Korshige. And my partner went up to Grace and said, hey, I love all the work that you've done. It's been phenomenal. Like, you know, your uh, comrades with this person and that person and, and this work. What would you say is like the most revolutionary thing you've ever done? And, and Grace at this point was uh, very up in age and in a wheelchair and, and speaking slower than she had before. But she took a minute to think. And she said, you know, if there's a revolutionary thing I would tell anyone to do, and it's what I did, was to find a place, move there, build a community, and don't leave. No matter what happens, no matter who comes, no matter who goes, be there for people to grow and learn in community be that steadfast entity. Mm. And so for me, that's what liberatory education and liberatory educational spaces can look like. Mm. Beautiful. Grace always comes through yeah. like that. Can't, you can't you top know? Grace. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, last question uh, before we let you go, and it's a two-parter because that's what we do is complex, annoying questions. Um, first off, you know, we're talking on this macro and we've been talking about these historical trends and, and structures, but the reality is, is that right now the process of schooling for so many kids and for so many parents is so difficult and, and, and such a challenge. I'm wondering if there's any one, maybe not advice, but guidance or things you've learned through your process or your scholarship uh, or just anything that you want to say to parents who are in that position right now. Um, and then the second part is uh, is there a teacher, someone you've learned from either in school or out at some point in your life that you want to shout out before we go? Cool, cool. Um, so first, one of the things that I feel is rather universal and I hear when I talk to people, no matter how much, whether you've got all the money in the world or a little bit of money, there's uncertainty, right? And when people are uncertain, they get scared. And their first instinct is to secure their family and secure their children. So I have a lot of conversations of like, I got to do the best by my child. As a researcher, as an educator, as someone who has done some organizing in his life, I'm never going to tell you not to do the best by your child. But I am going to ask you, how can you do well by your child and do good by other children too? Sometimes even this notion of doing the best for your child puts you in a place where you're going to hoard opportunities, puts you in a place where you're going to wall yourself off, puts you in a place of advantage when in a moment of crisis, we don't need you to behave normally. In fact, we need you to figure out what can you do different? How can you stretch in different ways? And for me, the more people are willing to stretch, the more willing people are to be uncomfortable, the more we can come out of this moment different. This moment has to transform us. Some folks are like, I can't wait to get back to going to brunch. Like, I get it. But like, no, there's got to be something 
around education that even the people who are committed to buildings of schools, right, that they start to rethink and say, well, dang, you know what? School works really well for my kid, but did it work well for your neighbors? Does it work well for all kids? If you start to interrogate that question and realize the answer is no, now I'm like, well, what's your responsibility to act? Where are the places that you can give a little bit more? And I'm not saying give a little bit more so you have none. I'm saying, what can you give up and what can you give and still get by? If you can start operating from that space, we can actually do something that's at least beginning to look different than what our schools have looked like. Because often we've told people, if you have it, you don't have to give up anything. And the truth of the matter is justice will always require someone give up something so that we can have something greater. Uh, shout out to a teacher. So um, a teacher that I met in college who has transformed my life in so many ways, a master teacher. Um, and to be clear, I was at Morehouse. He was at Clark. I wasn't taking his class. I literally met him out on the street. His name is Daniel Black. Uh, He's a phenomenal author. If you like to read fiction, read The Coming by Daniel Black or read Perfect Peace. Uh, he was the person who helped me understand who I was more fully. He was the person who helped me understand what community work and love looked like more fully and the value of keeping your principles at the center of how you move. So super shout out to him because he has changed my life and the life of so many. And I would I would be a fraction of who I am today had I not met him. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for taking this time and sharing your thoughts and uh, being in conversation with us. Um, how can folks find you and your work in the ways you want to be found? You can find me on these social media streets at uh, on Twitter at Dumi, D-U-M-I-L-M. You can find me on the World Wide Web at www.professorlewismccoy.com. You can find me on email, but I probably won't get back to you really quickly. So tweet at me or hit me in different spaces. <laughs> You're just asking to be spammed at this point, <laughs> what you just did. Right. <laughs> Thank you again. Um, we're at Ergo Radio. I'm at Ergo Kiss. I'm at Damon underscore AF. And we'll be back on the line uh, showcasing the folks reshaping our classrooms and culture for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Education. Education.